The Full Exposure Podcast is brought to you by Metro Health, University of Michigan Health, and Dr. Peter Hahn, in appreciation of the creative and artistic visionaries who enrich our lives through cultural connections. Hey, everybody, welcome to another edition of Full Exposure with me, your boy, Brian. Uh, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, you probably know that my family uh, has navigated a medical crisis or two in regard to our girls. We've been fairly frequent flyers to our hospital systems here in West Michigan. And I was especially excited to be able to sit down with Dr. Ron Grifka, who's uh, quite frankly, a man who has probably as an impressive medical resume as probably any doctor in the country. At his core, Dr. Grifka is a man who's dedicated his entire life to repairing the hearts of children. And if you think about that just conceptually for a second, uh, you have kids, babies, infants, uh, small children, uh, up to teens, that the engine inside of their bodies, their hearts, uh, aren't working properly. They need repair. And Dr. Grifka is a man who's done thousands and thousands and thousands of heart surgeries, heart catheterizations. And I was especially uh, interested in this intersection because of our experience uh as parents of kids who need help sometimes. Um, you know, his interaction with children and families is at a point where they need his very specialized expertise and they're facing a lot of uncertainty and doubt when they meet Dr. Grifka and especially at a time when some of their very toughest days and weeks are right in front of them. And so I was very pleased when I was talking to, to Dr. Grifka and I, I I only met him briefly on a video shoot. I had no personal interactions with him and didn't really know him at all. But when he came to the studio uh, and we got involved with this conversation, I was just pleased that I didn't meet uh, a walking resume. I met an empathetic, compassionate, caring, very impressive uh, man with a deep heart, no pun intended. Uh, But I think when you repair hearts and you dedicate your life to saving and improving the lives of children's hearts as a pediatric cardiologist. Uh, conceptually, you probably have a pretty decent heart in there as well. So, But uh, in this episode, we talk a lot about uh, Dr. Griffith's dedication to these families at a very uh, important crossroads in their lives for their kids and for their family. And what carries Dr. Grifka through both the good and bad days of being a doctor. And uh, I was especially intrigued with this moment, uh, this unique pressure that he feels when he's doing a surgery or some other type of procedure on a child's heart where they intentionally stop the heart so they can perform a procedure. And it takes, uh, it's about five seconds where they intentionally stop the heart of, of a living child and then they hope that the heart starts up again once the work's completed and I became very fascinated with that moment and just uh, what that must be like but hey we also talk about Texas barbecue and France 
And uh, there's a whole guy there. And I, I just really was, uh, I really, really liked Dr. Grifka. And um, now uh, he has chief medical officer at Metro Health. Dr. Grifka oversees over 500 doctors and 17 different departments in his role as chief medical officer at Metro Health, University of Michigan Health. So uh, let's explore the bigger picture now. Let's dive in with pediatric cardiologist, chief medical officer at Metro Health, University of Michigan Health, Dr. Ron Grifka. So we're officially rolling, Dr. Ron Grifka. Nice to have you here. We just did a nice little photo shoot, and it was fun. And I had you—I kind of put you through literally some paces. We experimented with a, a little bit of long exposure photography. We'll see how it comes out. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, and look forward to chatting with you and yeah, talking about the world. Yeah, I'm really excited because you're you're uh, chief medical officer at um, Metro Health who is uh, our number one uh, underwriter and a great partner. I have to say, you know, between Dr. Hahn and, and your entire staff, uh, our relationship here on this podcast has been phenomenal and allowed us to do things that we, we wouldn't be able to do as just a little uh, one-man band podcast. So, Well, thank you. We've got some great people at Metro Health, and uh, it makes it easy to talk about. Yeah, it's a good. It's a good. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm impressed with the culture, the association with the University of Michigan Medicine, which I think is everyone knows is a is a you know top tier medical brand, research hospital. You know all the things you want. Maybe you can just quickly off the bat, and I want to get back to this little lead up conversation we were having before the camera started. But just talk about the horsepower that maybe U of M and that sort of a collaboration that happens with Metro Health because. Metro Health started as this small little regional community hospital, and now there's major affiliation. So from your perspective, what's great about the U of M Metro Health collaboration and partnership? Well, I actually was on the faculty at the Macho Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor for eight years, and then spent two years um, as the liaison between the health system in Ann Arbor and Metro. And then for the last two years, I've been the chief medical officer. But certainly being firsthand knowledge of how the health system in Ann Arbor, University of Michigan works, is very helpful. But you see, being able to translate some of those techniques and skills and uh, procedures here to West Michigan is very helpful. There are some great doctors, great nurses, great therapists here at Metro. And to be able to bring some additional um, new techniques and operations and uh, different procedures to advance the care in West Michigan has been very helpful, very enlightening, and very rewarding, to say the least. Full disclosure, my my oldest daughter, Anna, just graduated from U of M, so she's an alum. I'm actually leaving... This afternoon, I'm going to go pick her up. She's she finished, graduated semester early, which we're very proud of uh, and grateful to her yes. for. <laughs> but also, um, uh, but she's living in Ann Arbor now, and uh, for the rest of this lease that we have, of course. Of course yeah. And she wants to walk in the spring when her uh, classmates and her all her friends, uh, you know, graduate. So she's postponed her graduation until May. But anyway, I'm going to go pick her up. She's going to come home for a long weekend. And, well, congratulations uh, to her, and uh, of course, go blue. <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, I know you're a proud East Sider too. Uh, you went to Wayne State. I grew up in inner city Detroit, right by City Airport. No um, way. I did, yeah. Then went to Wayne State University for both undergraduate and medical school, and then did my residency at the Children's Hospital, Michigan, in downtown Detroit. No way. That's mm-hmm. a fantastic. So... 
But in that, I'm just curious. So you grew up in the city of Detroit. So what what were your what was growing up like, and what did your parents do? And then now you're a doctor. So what were some? Uh, just give me the landscape of like how you were raised in Detroit sure. and what the dynamic was with your family. We were about three blocks from City Airport. Uh, both neither of my parents went to college. My father worked on the assembly line at Chrysler for 48 years. No way. Yeah, and we had six kids. I was the fifth of six. Okay. Um, so it, uh, and I had a lot of hand-me-downs from my two older brothers. <laughs> yeah, he did. But nonetheless, uh, he made a good yes. living in that era. I'm sure you know unions and uh, working on the line. That was good, good things. But like you got that many kids, things get stretched. It, it was kind of tight. You're right. And then, as I mentioned before, you know, I'm the fifth of six kids. My younger brother, uh, Mark, had uh, Down syndrome. So it certainly yeah. changed the family dynamics and was probably part of the impetus for me to go into medicine. Okay. How, uh, how much younger is he? Uh, he is uh, six years younger than myself. Okay. So you were, you know, that was, you knew your brother was different, you know, when, was, he, it, when he arrived. It was interesting. Well, back then, uh, in the you know, mid to late 60s, he didn't start walking until he was four. Okay. And it was about at that age they actually diagnosed Down syndrome. They didn't know much about it back then. Yeah. Whereas now we know in utero diagnosis and soon sure. after birth. But uh, he was just, you know, why isn't he walking at four? My brother's supposed to be walking. And yeah. it was uh, quite a, it really changed the family dynamics. And you see how my parents really adapted to really devote everything to take care of him. Yeah. Uh, which they certainly should have done. And they did a great job doing it. But uh, I'm just curious how, how it prepped you, you know, having a brother with Down syndrome and special needs. Did that create an extra door of empathy for when you were caring for families and having um, a little more of a window into a family member who's uh, maybe not like the mainstream population. Sure. Oh, absolutely. It's you know I thought uh, as Mark was going through a number of tests and evaluations, I always thought the, the physicians and the healthcare system really could have done a little more for Mark and for my parents. Mm-hmm. And I thought as I went into medicine, I can do better. Yeah. And so every day I, I hope to do better and. Uh, we probably do spend a little more time with these families, with these patients. Um, I know what they need and what can be helpful to them, and um, it doesn't take a lot from me to provide that, but a little extra can go a long way to these families and these uh, wonderful kids. Well, and I was sharing a little bit about our family dynamic with uh, two of our three kids have mm-hmm. you know, been pretty frequent flyers, and Maddie is doing wonderfully. He's 19, has type 1 diabetes, and Faith uh, had a stroke in utero, you know, so she had crisis before she ever uh, came came into the world. So we've been through it a lot. We've, we've learned to advocate and ask questions, and, you know, I think the challenges in a healthcare system, and I think what you're alluding to earlier in your answer was just, you know, you can easily, if you don't feel like you can be proactive and advocate mm-hmm. for yourself and ask the type of questions and push back is the wrong word, but be strongly being an advocate, especially for children, your children, um, you can get herded through a system and kind of like hey, everything's kind of hunky-dory, but, uh, you know, if you don't have the agency or feel you have the power to ask questions, sounds to me like, you know, in your practice, you know, you might welcome some of that exploration around the yeah. edges of what you're thinking. No, certainly. I look forward to questions from parents. I hope if I do my job correctly, they don't have any questions. <laughs> I've answered them all before they uh, uh, come up with them, but certainly, uh, even with my best preparation, they do have uh, great questions and other things that I may not have thought about. But, uh, you know, another minute or two of my time uh, is, you know, hours to them. Yeah, And it, it's just so helpful to make sure that uh, they leave there with all their questions answered, feeling comfortable with what we're discussing. Some of the discussions aren't necessarily fun or, or enjoyable. 
Well, and that's a, a, I have so many questions for you. Uh, uh, you. You told me I could call you Ron, so I think I will for this. It's yeah, easier than Dr. Griffka. Sure. <laughs> but Dr. Griffka, um, you know, that, that really is, I mean, uh, what I admire most about um, doctors and people who are at the forefront, you know, you, you might go through a day where you're, you're breaking not so great news to people. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, three times a day or a week or maybe more sometimes, you know, and then there's times where uh, outcomes aren't what you had hoped mm-hmm. and um, planned for, for the family and for the patient. But I'm wondering what it sort of underpins you to do this every day, keep swinging and helping and serving uh, families that are, you know, we're not at our best when we're in your office, you know, we're there because the wheels have come off, excuse me, <clears throat> the wheels have come off in sure. some way in life with our health. So what keeps pulling you back and keeps you centered and also sane, you know, as a practitioner? It it can be challenging, but seeing that the the work that you do, um, the good work is helpful. And um, we do have tough days. There's no doubt about that. And fortunately, um, in my desk, I've got a nice letter file. Oh, yeah. And uh, when you have a bad day or have to break bad news to a family, and you you know know that their day is not going to be better after speaking to you. I'll go into my nice letters file and letters from parents, families, patients, pictures that they've drawn, cards that they've sent, and um, sometimes just you know three or four minutes of going over some nice letters from families uh, can make you feel enough to I need to go back and do the next patient, yeah. the next family, and it's um, it can be challenging, but again, how you treat them, how you break it to them, and how you deal with them, um, you know, it's a five or ten or thirty minutes for me, but it's a lifetime for them. Sure. So making sure that they feel comfortable leaving. Boy, you just hit the nail on the head because I often try to describe what it's like to get a diagnosis for your children. I think it's different. Like I've never had a diagnosis for me personally that really set my life in one moment in a different path, but I've had it for two of my children. Mm -hmm. And that moment where it's there's this sharp delineation when you're uh, meeting about your child, you know there's something wrong quite seriously wrong and then you get an answer but your life up until that particular intersection was one way and then once we have a a relationship with someone like yourself where you're given the news and more information and and a path forward your life's forever that changed and so the weight I would bring if I was in your shoes it's like you know sometimes these are very hard conversations where the life of the family is is forever changed and um, I don't know if there's anyone to add to well, that, but it was just that moment, no, you know, a, just so such a striking thing. I think when when there is a uh, very challenging um, diagnosis to deliver to a family, before I give it to them, I sit back and say, "How would I want them to explain this to me? Mm-hmm. How how am I going to understand this, explain this, and know where to go once I leave the office?" Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, as I said, it, they walk out, I see the next patient, but for them, this is lifelong. Yeah, and how you relate it to them, how you get them comfortable with the next steps, is the difference between um, their uh, really being able to thrive in in life or not. And uh, the more time and effort you spend with that, and, and really connecting with them is important. And it can take some time, um, but as I said, a minute or two for us is hours and days for them. Well, you hit the nail on the head when you feel like your doctor really really has an interest in your child or in you personally and has a little bit of that softer bedside, empathetic, uh, yet professional and, and, and steady um, relationship, 
it makes all the difference. You know, there was a quote from Teddy Roosevelt who once said, nobody cares what you know till they know that you care. <laughs> yeah, that, I'm going to make a plaque yeah, out of that. But true, <laughs> no, I mean, they, they have to, you really have to care for the, the family and the patient. And, uh, and sometimes you have to get up close and you have to hold their hand. Yeah. Um, and really look them in the eye, and sometimes you have to take a box of Kleenex with you. Sure. Um, but th- if that's what's needed, then so be it. That's uh, a, a small price for us to pay, so to speak. But yet a huge yeah. benefit to them. Yeah, for sure. And um, well, I admire everyone in the in the you know heroes overused and sort of slapped around now on anyone who who steps up in their role. And, you know, the other counterpoint to that is this is what you signed up for. You right. know, this is what you went through training for, and. Um, you know, to be a true professional requires you to be professionally empathetic too. I think it's oh, a standard that that any doctor or anyone in healthcare can aspire to. Is like how to, as you said, get better every day, not okay. settling. Well, it's uh, one thing that taught me. I was at Texas Children's Hospital in Houston for twenty years, and one thing they taught you from day one is, what did you do to make us better today? Yeah, right. And you think about that after several months, all of a sudden you start driving to work thinking. What am, am I going to do to make us better today? Yeah. And then it's uh, it, the whole team is thinking that that mindset. All of a sudden, great things can happen. Well, it changes the culture. It just it makes a more positive workplace. And I think you know certainly, um, and I don't want to pivot too too quickly to like you know the current events sure. in time. But like you know transitionally as chief medical officer, just explain kind of your purview. You're still making some rounds, but you're in, in largely in administration now and management of the hospital and but under your purview like what are your main responsibilities if you're the CMO of Metro Health University sure. of Michigan well the, the chief medical officer's responsibility is to really uh, run the medical care in the hospital mm-hmm. so I try to start most mornings uh, through the emergency room maybe, maybe 6 or 6 3 in the morning talk to the staff the nurses the physicians the therapists the ward clerks mm-hmm. see how their how their night went how the day's looking and then from there I usually then go to the um, preoperative area where everybody's coming in for their surgical procedures, talk to uh, the, all the staff there, and then upstairs, they'll start in the ICU and go to the floors, and it's kind of nice to be there right around shift change because you can uh, hear the nurses who are leaving, uh, find out what their uh, challenges were overnight, mm-hmm. and then talk to the nurses during the day so that we maybe help address some of those concerns that they will have to take care of. And, you know, the nice thing I found that by rounding myself, I can, number one, determine the problem exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, because if I wait for it to come to my office, number one, I'm not sure what it is. It's filtered right. by 12 people. Number two, it's a disaster. Right. Yeah. So if I can take care of it, know what it is, take care of it immediately, or help someone take care of it, then really it, it's much easier, much um, prompter, it's better for patient care, and certainly engenders the support of all the people in the hospital, all the staff. And sure. for them to know that you know their chief medical officer has got their back and is in this with them. Uh, well, I'm volumes. sure you have a nice office, but the point that you spend the first couple hours of your day uh, on a, essentially a listening tour, yeah, sure, is is impactful. I'm sure for everybody because you're not uh, somebody that they only see when something horrible happened and uh, major changes need to be made quickly. You're part of the. You're embedded with yeah, the team, sure. so to speak. Yeah, yeah too many times, uh, an administrator or another uh, uh, suit, so to speak, <laughs> they show up on the floor. Okay, what's wrong? Why are they here? Right. Whereas, uh, fortunately, enough, been there for two years. When I'm on the floors. You know, some of the nurses and therapists will come up and say, hey, Dr. Grifka, here's what I saw, or here's what I did, or here's the issue I have. Mm-hmm. So the fact that now they're comfortable coming up to me, they're knowing I'm there to help work through problems with them, 
and hear their successes too. I yeah. mean, I like that just as much as the problems. <laughs> yeah, and you can interface with some families, ask how they're doing. Sure. And I mean, you get the full breadth of uh, doing that tour from ER to OR to ICU to everywhere else. I find it quite helpful to do it on the weekends also. Things are a little relaxed because there's not so many scheduled procedures. Right. People have a bit more time. They're a bit more open with their thoughts and really can learn an awful lot on Saturday or Sunday rounding. Uh, Where did you learn that? Did you observe that in uh, CMOs you may have worked with in the past? Or uh, talk about just the pivot. I'm wondering, like, just professionally from, you know, going from active just uh, practice. And you mentioned you've done uh, seven or 8,000 yeah. heart catheterizations yeah. and so, so many times in, in utero. Sure. And, uh, very complicated things, but that pivot from being a, a, a primary, spending your time on patient, individual patients, to uh, an individual hospital organization, what did you learn and in, in throughout that pivot in being the, the CMO of that organization? I think getting to this point, um, my daughter, oldest daughter, was a great basketball player, and in high school she tore her ACL, <laughs> needed surgery, so we were in Houston, I spoke to the surgeon who was the lead knee surgeon for all the Houston sports teams, the Astros, the yeah. Oilers, the Rockets. But uh, he's telling me all the, and during the exam, he's got pictures on his walls of all the famous athletes he's operated on and, oh, right. they did this person's knee, et cetera. And I looked at him and I said, Jim, I have one question for you. On Monday, I need one good operation. <laughs> I don't care how many you've done in the past, how many great athletes you've done, but can you give me one good operation on Monday? Because that's what I need for my daughter. Yeah. He looked at me and said, no one's ever asked me that question before. Right. I said, well, I'm asking you today. Yeah. He says, yeah, I can do it. Yeah. But it, that, that kind of changed my perspective because now whenever um, I do a heart catheterization on a child, a baby, a newborn, um, an older child, even sometimes, as you said, a fetus, um, and the most precious thing in that family's life is their child. Yeah. And they're trusting me to put these catheters in their heart and do balloons and crazy things. Um, and I just found myself now, after I asked the, the surgeon that, I have to be more prepared. Now, I can't have a bad day. Right, right. You have to have your A game every day. Yeah. And I think when you have that perspective, it just teaches you a new set of responsibility and um, what you owe it to these families. And just applying that now as chief medical officer yeah. is really just, uh, you know, these patients are here because they're, they're vulnerable, they're ill, and they're trusting us with their most valuable possessions. Mm-hmm. And the least we can do is give them our best. Yeah. Well, I think what your question, I th- I'm really taken with that because you were a patient and advocating for your child and your daughter at that point, you know, was she in high school at the time? Sure. Or, right. right, yes. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, that having just the courage to challenge this, you know, famous world-renowned, surgeon, yeah. famous uh, athletic mm-hmm. surgeon to say, you know, I don't give a shit about but- all these posters yeah. on the wall, I, I need one from you, exactly. you know? And, uh, you know, I'm sure you would recognize that same in, uh, intensity and sort of concern from a patient or their family at the same time. And just one little story I mentioned to you that Dr. Foodie, who was a famous neurosurgeon in, in Michigan here, uh, with, uh, Spectrum Health at the time. But, uh, anyway, I, I remember specifically sort of half joking, um, when he took Faith, our, our youngest daughter, off for a, 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 another surgery. brain surgery. Sure. And I just joked, and it's like, you know, Dr. Fudy, I don't want to put any extra pressure on you today. Right. You got your hands full, but uh, this one, 
This one means a lot yeah. to us. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, but just that little, little probe, little fun, little, you know, it was something that relieved my pressure. I don't know if he took it. You know, he certainly, you know, sort of smiled and laughed, and I think he appreciated it because yeah. it kind of snaps you into this child, this moment, because I think there's so many procedures and so many patients you see, there's a blur. But I think what you're talking about with this particular surgeon in Houston you really related one-on-one and that got him thinking about your daughter's case specifically, at least for a moment, you know, to calibrate. Well, it didn't. It got me thinking after that, every patient I take care of. Yeah. I've never really had that perspective before. Yeah. But if this was so important to me that we get a great operation, every patient I see, it's their parent, they have the same perspective. It's important for yeah. them, yeah. for me to do a great procedure. And it just really kind of upped my game. As yeah. you know, I, I owe it to them to really... Uh, make sure we're continuously doing everything we can to do the best for these patients, and not just for the patient, but then discussing it and educating the family what we did, mm-hmm. where we are, and where we will be going. And you know, if you can, as I said, if you can answer, I'm, nothing's more important for me when I, at the end of a discussion with a family, any question, they say, no, you've answered them all. Yeah, right. Then, you know, you've yeah. connected, and they're going to have a comfort level with you, and they'll feel that their child is great well, cared for. we've also set the bar, and it's been a long time since we've had to, like, um, do this, but we we often, you know, there's good doctors and bad doctors. We haven't had any bad doctors, but we were looking because our kids were longer term. We knew they needed um, frequent flyer, so to speak. Sure. So having a little more personal touch feeling, I don't need to be your best friend, but I need to like you. Mm-hmm. You know, you're caring for my children and not just a uh, because you've shown some em- empathy and also just some very specific interest. So we always really, my wife Kathy and I were just, if we were getting the care on a keyboard and they would hardly look mm-hmm. and they're just like, you know, for five, ten minutes barely looking at your child and just kind of running through a routine of questions, like we would request that we are not under the care of that doctor sure. anymore. And that was how important that connection was because we might only get five or ten minutes of your time. So that point where you feel like you were, that doctor was vested in us for that moment, and that's what you were doing with your daughter as well, you know, and you're that doctor. And when I'm in clinic, I, uh, I don't use the computer in the room. Um, I find myself too geared to the keyboard and the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, I spend most of the time looking at the, the patients and the fam- family and the parents, and um, it takes a little longer to get the note done afterwards, a minute or two. Sure. Yeah. But again, it, it's a minute or two for me, but it's an eternity for them. Yeah. And to make sure that they've got that comfort level, that they know you're listening to them and hearing everything they say. Yeah. And just as with some of our friends are more challenging than others, some patients are more challenging than others. <laughs> but yeah, I'm not, certainly can, not. Yeah, I'm sure no, we yeah, were challenging yeah. at times, you know, to people and go, oh my gosh. But um, but you know, you need to connect to all of them, and yeah. that's that's the key. Yeah. And you know, some some days a little easier than others. Yeah. But uh, as I keep reminding the, the young doctors. No matter how bad your day is in the hospital, when you leave here, smile, because we're going home. Yes. And a lot of people here aren't. Yes. So if we're going home. We're going to have a good day once we get there. Yeah. Um, so just remember that and treat all your patients uh, as best you can, because they're not going to go home tonight, but you will. Yeah. Well, and that's a great reminder for, our, for all of us, you know, as we work through COVID and the pandemic mm-hmm. and just, you know, uh, if we're fortunate enough to either come through it because you had it, but also if you've avoided it to this point, um, you know, we're all pretty lucky and uh, there, there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I wanted to ask you specifically about heart surgeries and catheterization. Sure. So um, I'm just fascinated, like what I mentioned with uh, brain surgeons and heart surgeons. 
The fact, uh, again, I'll go back to Dr. There's things I never will forget about that time when she was in critical care and getting sur- brain surgeries. But, the, um, you know, uh, Dr. Foodie just straight up admitted I was asking all these questions about her prognosis. And, you know, this is an infant. And, sure. you know, he's like, Brian, there's an awful lot we don't know no. about the brain, you know. And uh, it's a mystery. And we won't know until we know. You know, and that, and I was just wanting answers, you know, just kind of grasping, well, what is she going to be like at three and what capacity will she have and this and that. And a lot we don't know. Same with heart surgery right, to sure. some degree, uh, I'm sure. Exactly. No, and the one thing uh, I do, I put balloons in little babies' hearts and put plugs in and rip holes in some kids' hearts uh, if needed. But uh, when I was deciding whether or not to go into this interventional catheterization procedures in little kids, um, I just talked to my, one of my mentors who was well-known and very astute, and uh, he said, well, let me ask you a question, Ron. He said, did you get 95% on all your tests in undergrad? And I said, mm-hmm. you know, you don't get to medical school. I did pretty well. Yeah. He said, well, did you get 95% on your tests in medical school? I said, no. He said, did you get 95% on your board scores? I said, no. He said, well, if you're 95% successful as an interventionalist, you're going to starve. <laughs> Because the bar is that high, you have to be better than that. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong if you can't, but yeah. then you need to find something else. Right. Because if you're having one out of 20 problems, yeah. the patients aren't going to feel comfortable with you. Sure. He says, you're the only one who can answer that question, how good can you be? Yeah. Um, and yet you still leapt into the, uh, the procedure. Crazily, I proceeded <laughs> on that path. Yeah, but it, uh, no, but it really just, again, put a lot of things in perspective that uh, you know, people really expect uh, a great result. Well, literally, at that point, your their lives and that sure. that patient's lives is literally in your hands, or the instruments that you're working through, and that's the other is the tremendous advancements in technology. But it's still your expertise. I mean, it's one thing you could give me a, a you know some robotic tools, sure. but you wouldn't. It doesn't make it necessarily easier. Uh, maybe the you know there's benefits to this technology, but it's still your mind and your decision making process throughout every procedure that creates well, that hopefully 100% sure. outcome. And, you know, when you inflate a balloon in a little child's heart, you know, for five or six seconds, there's no heartbeats. Yeah. And you deflate the balloon, and you sure hope the heartbeats come back. Yeah. Um, and thank goodness, with all the great techniques and staff we've got, they almost always do. But there's always that little moment of uh, yeah. um, angst. But uh, that's why you, you practice, work with great people, and you uh-huh. really are prepared going into the, into the procedure. Boy, that five seconds just conceptually just thought about Seems like, like you should forever. yes, but also it's like you should write a book around that. The, the The premise of the book is like that: what you feel and what you experience in that five seconds, and so many things have to come together mm-hmm. that you have a predictable outcome. Otherwise, well, you wouldn't stop the heart, you know. And it doesn't matter how many years of schooling you've had because everybody in that room, all your nurses, technicians, therapists, anesthesiologists, everybody's important. Yeah. And no one's more important than the other. We're all the sure. team. And if you're all not rowing in the same direction, mm-hmm. um, it can be even more challenging. You bring up a good point. I've been fortunate to, to film quite a few um, surgeries, you know, and I've been in ORs filming mm-hmm. things. and. Uh, the concert that happens around the table uh, between the surgeon and the anesthesiologist and the, the, you know, there's maybe 10 or 12 people in this room at various times. And it is a synchronous, you know, a lot of people don't get to see that because you're under anesthesia and families aren't in there, you know, by your side. So that is really a dance that 
really requires an experienced team. And I can't imagine how important key people are where you just link in and you have one director of nursing or whatever the roles are. I won't have the titles right. But that's your anesthesiologist. If you have a preference, you want that particular doc or this uh, nurse assisting you and handing you instruments because you have a shorthand. And I'm sure through seven or eight thousand catheterizations and heart surgeries, you've you've uh, got an A team of people that. that well, you certainly, work with. it is an orchestra, and you, you need to have a conductor. But then the conductor has to have everybody else playing instruments. Yeah, and they have to hit all the right notes and chords and, mm-hmm. and go from there. So it's. Uh, I think there was a coach in Ann Arbor who once said, uh, "The team, the team, the team." <laughs> kind That's of trite, true. but it, you know, it right. it's true in the operating room, true in the cath lab. I mean. You know, you need to have everybody on the same uh, same page, um, rowing in the same direction, and boy, it can make all the difference in the world. Yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting too. The you know, over time, you you know, then there'd be tense moments, and there'd be moments where music is playing, and and there's just normal sort of conversation. Everyone's focused on what they're doing, but there's these lighter moments, um, and just uh, this relationship that ha- the patient is there and central to why everybody's there, but. There's also these, it's a workplace, you know, mm-hmm. and people are just chatting and doing some things in the midst of a surgery or in between. And, and there's so many steps. different perspectives. Some people have loud music, some people have classical music, some people have no music. Yeah. Um, and uh, they develop a system that works for them. Yeah. And it, it is quite variable, but then again, we are, and people are all variable. So it's Did you have a particular surprising. music? Were you, what, what were you, no music or so, music? Well, I grew up in Detroit, so. Motown, Motown, R and B. You're uh, speaking my language now, go. Ron. But uh, yeah, Motown's great. Uh, I'm a big fan of Bob Seger, another yeah. Michiganian. <laughs> um, and uh, having spent 20 years in Texas, it's hard not to listen to country music. Yeah, so true. I would alternate between Motown country and uh, uh, some rock. That's fantastic. Yeah, were you a Glenn Fry Eagles fan? At oh, all? absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, anyone. Uh, we had a trivia game the other day because we've been doing so much during the pandemic. We're setting up my, especially on my wife's side. We do it on my side too, but there's a big family on my wife's side. And so we connect all our brothers and sisters and nephews and things across the country. But there was a, a question about Tom Selleck being from Detroit. And yep. he, Magna P.I. always had the Tiger's Cat. Yep. And uh, anyway, it's just interesting this time we're in. But yeah, I find, uh, yeah. For myself personally, I love uh, Motown, early R&B, some early um, kind of funk music that emerged out of the 60s and 70s and 80s. I still, that's my primary playlist. If it sounds kind of like retro, that area, uh, era, you know, I love I, uh, it. I, uh, a couple of years ago, I came across a T-shirt. I did not buy it, but I wish I had. Uh, it said, uh, I may be old, but I saw a lot of cool bands. <laughs> <laughs> What do you know about Texas barbecue? Are you a barbecue oh, guy? It's hard not to like barbecue. Yeah, yeah. no, it's uh, and if, if you ever get a chance to have a rack of beef ribs, yeah, pork ribs you'll never eat again. But uh, yeah. yeah, no, it's uh, the food in Texas has been fantastic. The people are very kind and warm. After twenty years there, I was very happy. But uh, it was just kind of come home to Michigan. Yeah, family's here, and this is kind of my roots. And it was just nice to be back and. Uh, you see, it's how long a, have you been back now? From, did you come right from back from Texas into uh, to, 2006? We came back. Okay, so I was there for 20 years, but now I'm back for I guess 14 years now. And I can run, and I jog often, but I can run in 9,500 degrees. But less than 40, uh, I will say, <laughs> Take it I, I, I lost that a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, um, 
Uh, yeah, and then just uh, I don't know if you have any. I'm just wondering, top of mind, because Texas is on everybody's mind with sure. this power outage. But can you imagine trying to practice in Houston with this, the struggles that they've had? And, uh, and has it informed your thinking as a CMO up here? What do we do if something well, weird? It, it's terrible. Really, it, it does give you uh, some uh, emergency uh, um, processing uh, preparation, um, as we had with uh, you know we had a, a flood a few years ago that we had to deal with. Now with COVID, we've had to deal with, and mm-hmm. you know, this whole this whole you know personal protective equipment, the PPE, we used to just stock you know, three to five days worth of gloves and masks and things because we yeah. could we'd get deliveries seven days a week. Yeah. And we didn't have a big storehouse. We didn't need to, so we used that as areas for other things. On-time delivery. That's right. what you need. Right. On I mean, Amazon, you know, same day. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, but now we try to keep, you know, three to six months of supplies. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's changed our whole thought process and um, just our whole emergency preparedness is different. And it's COVID, we hope uh, there won't be another pandemic, but... Uh, could be something else and you know, the vaccine certainly is just uh it's the light at the end of the tunnel yeah we're really looking forward to that but uh you know as you said we're so close to getting out of this pandemic just we need to bear with it just a bit longer with the, i don't like wearing a mask but we have to do it a little longer sure the social distancing um we're getting there but uh don't let our guard down now we're almost home can you just kind of candidly frame two things for me? One is, like, what were some of your frustrations about going through COVID and the pandemic that made your life as a medical provider more difficult, as a hospital system more difficult, either attitudes in the public, and I'm not leaning you in mm-hmm. one way or another, and then maybe one takeaway that really gave you a lot of hope about uh just where we're at, as you mentioned, we're seeing some light at the end of the mm-hmm. tunnel, but, like, what was your greatest frustration Mm, that purview, and then maybe sure. what counterbalanced that for you? Certainly, I think uh, masks and other personal protective equipment, uh, gloves, gowns, goggles, just to protect our staff. Mm-hmm. And they were on the front lines every day. They didn't know if patients were coming in, had COVID, or did not have COVID, whether they had symptoms or not. Um, and But they they gutted it out every single day. But to some, it took a while for us to get enough PPE to tell them, yes, you're safe to be working here with us. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And that was frustrating to see them going out uh, for a few days or weeks until we got enough uh, protective equipment in. Um, it was just, it hurt to, to know I couldn't do more for them. Yeah, and all that they were doing for our community. Yeah, there was a vacuum where you you know uh, help might be on the way, equipment might be on the way, the supplies you might, mm-hmm. but you had that moment where you still had to do your job and step up. Exactly, and some most people did step up, and other people were quite uh, uh, taken aback by it. But I can't blame them. They've got lives, they've got families, they've got kids. Sure. Um, but uh, to not be able to provide them everything that, that I think they would need it to be as uh, careful as possible and safe as possible, that uh, you'd walk home at night thinking, you know, I just didn't do enough today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, what really uh, was kind of a unique inspiration uh, through this time that gives you hope? How, you know, how have you improved abstractly as an organization because you're tempered through a particular year-long crisis. Uh, any takeaways from this time? I think certainly it's uh, helped us work together more. Um, we know that uh, although there's different areas, be it finance or purchasing or yeah. nursing or physicians, we're all certainly in this a little more together. Yeah. And we all need to make sure we're on the same page, make sure we're uh, communicating well. I think our communication mm-hmm. has definitely improved. Yeah. Um, sometimes we'd maybe wait till something got more critical, but now we're a little more upfront and addressing things a little sooner, yeah. which is a positive. Um, and just uh, making sure that we're all uh, doing everything we can to take care of each other. Uh, yeah. Most departments would take care of themselves, but now, well, maybe I don't need these masks. I can give them to 
the emergency room or the sure. intensive care unit or yeah. the nursing students need something. Mm-hmm. Um, so to be able to uh, to see the um, expansion of our thoughts mm-hmm. about helping take care of others has really been uh, a real uh, a real blessing to see. Yeah. Um, Dr. Hahn, who's your CEO and director, he had popped in here last week for a, a different photo shoot that mm-hmm. I was working on for a magazine, and he was one of some people that are profiled in the magazine. But I said, how's the... How's everything going? You know, like, and I meant more financially. You mm-hmm. know, it's like because I know it came. You know, it's tough. Uh, you're spending instead of real time expense. You know, you right. need to purchase months of supplies. That's millions and millions of dollars of PPE that you yeah, exactly. have to run. Right. So, but uh, he said, you know, we're we're doing okay. You know, and we're 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 seeing some light at the end of the tunnel as well. But uh, as you go through this, uh, you know, this process of trying to step up. Um, uh, vaccinations, and you know, as we record this, this is you know later-ish February of 2021. Um, you know, what do you see in terms of the vaccine cycle, and when we might get to you know hopefully 200, 250 million people vaccinated? Hopefully, uh, I'd like to say it'll be summer. Yeah. Um, last, uh, I guess it was probably last March or April. I said. We'll be wearing masks until Easter of 2021. Mm-hmm. I suspect it may be a couple months longer than that. Really? Yeah. But, um, 2022, you mean? No, or no, this no, year? Just, this year? Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, I was hoping we'd be done by uh, April yeah. of this year, but I think it's going to be a few months longer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've never had to, or even attempted to vaccinate 330 million people before. <laughs> so, I mean, people yeah. oh, there's bumps and why is it? Well, yeah. I mean, really, it's not surprising. Yeah. It, it, this is a, a major uh, healthcare crisis, the likes of which we've never seen. Yeah. Hopefully we won't again, but uh, I think if we do, we're certainly going to be more prepared. Yeah. But um, we do need to just uh, be patient, and you know, we'd like to give everybody a vaccine today. Yeah, of course. I'm wondering just if you can speak to the innovation. I mean, I know that the fact that there are now several uh, different, very viable, effective, mm-hmm. that seem to be effective vaccines, just what you know about science and vaccines and the pharmacology of, uh, I don't even know if that's the right the word. Virology, I know. I've, uh, I've read more about vaccines in the last year than I have in my previous life. So, it's, But just uh, the system yeah. of making vaccines and the companies, that the private ones that were involved, like the fact that they could take this new strain of mm-hmm. COVID and create a vaccine within a year and earlier, you right. know, in production, you know, is that really uh, one of the, Mount Rushmore of human medicine achievement in the last hundred years, or well, where do you where do you put it? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's an interesting concept. Operation Warp Speed. What uh, some people are worried that the vaccines were rushed out; they mm-hmm. haven't been tested. But that's not the case. They have been tested. What we did differently, which was just something we've never done before, um, we started once they made the vaccine. And they started testing it. Uh, they said, "Okay, start making it." Yeah. So while we're testing it. We're making millions, hundreds of millions of doses so that if after the testing we realize that the vaccine is safe and effective, we'll have 100 million doses to give yeah. as opposed to starting making it at that point. Yeah. Now, it was an educated gamble because yeah. if it didn't work, they had to throw all yeah. their vaccine out in sure. a couple billion dollars. Yeah. Fortunately, the vaccine did work. And then once it's approved, boom, we've got you know, 80 million doses ready to go. Yeah, they're in the pipeline. Completely different thought process and not... Tremendously, um, not really, not changing the science at all. Yeah. But just the timing of how we did things. And well, that's a massive bet. You know, I mean, you're going to put mm-hmm. all your chips on. Okay, this right. looks promising. These first initial tests, we have to go through some additional time and protocols and whatever you need to do to 
to thoroughly test something, but we're going to act like this is uh, ready to run, and we're going to run as fast as we can with it in terms of stockpiling and getting it. And how great is it? You know, it's produced by Pfizer just south of us here in Kalamazoo. It's amazing. Is great, but, uh, yeah, great Michigan yeah. story there for sure. Absolutely. Um, then, uh, you know, well, that's hopeful with the, the vaccine and that we may, you know, summer, midsummer, mm-hmm. be back a bit to our normal life. What makes you... Um, Hopeful about the healthcare industry emerging out of the pandemic. Is there any abstract thoughts you have about how this may have changed medicine forever? Well, I think it was interesting to see how you know the healthcare systems worked together through yeah. this pandemic, um, and we hope that the, the process will continue. Yeah. Because although we, there is obviously some competition involved, there's a lot of it. Uh, we're looking, we're trying to achieve the same thing. Yeah. And how can we really maybe focus together uh, to address some issues? It may be you know, better care for um, patients who are a little less fortunate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can work together to address them. Um, but nonetheless, I think uh, we really have come together as a community, as have other communities. Yeah. But I think West Michigan, a little different, um, and really did do a great job working together to help uh, put clamps on this. Yeah. I was impressed early on, you know, a year ago or so, um, you know, these combined messages. You know, you mentioned it's a very cutthroat industry. Uh, You know, there's big three. uh, There's Metro Health, there's Spectrum, and there's um, Mercy Mercy Mm Health, St. Mary, or what used to be St. Mary's. And, you know, there's battling, like the billboard wars, there's the marketing wars, Mm -hmm. there's patient, you know, um, attraction stuff. But really put that on pause for the community because it was it was a crisis. Fortunately, we didn't have the wave that we were preparing for. To the your point about an educated bet, yeah, exactly. I mean, imagine mm-hmm. if we'd sort of slow walked, uh, and then the response was what we'd planned, but we'd unprepared. That would have been a disaster. No, you're right. It was uh, the, the community did come together. The healthcare systems came together, and you know, we prepared for this big onslaught in uh, March and April, which we really didn't get. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we probably let our guard down a little bit uh, at the end of the summer. And you know, in October, November, we had quite a surge. Yeah. Uh, and we were, yeah. our hospitals were full, all three hospitals. And nonetheless, um, it was a bit challenging. But I think we've, again, come back together and put things uh, in a better place. And our numbers are looking better. Mm-hmm. Patients are safer. And the vaccine's out. So uh, we're really, I, I'm quite optimistic about 2021. Yeah. Well, good. What advice would you have to people who it's I've said it to my my kids and other people I you know I really feel I've made it my family's made it this far without it I try my damnedest not to get it now I don't I don't want to get it I don't want to be a statistic we're so close sure and I fear it you know I really do I don't you know I mean anything can happen you know you don't know what would you know, happen it's, it's interesting the, the the best analogy I can think of is. When I was in Houston for 20 years, most years we'd drive home from Houston back to Detroit to visit family. Yeah. And the closer we got to Detroit, the slower I drove. <laughs> I haven't gotten a ticket for 1,500 miles. I'm not going to get it the last 30. Exactly. But it's kind of like COVID. We've made it so far. Yes. Don't let your guard down. Now keep your mask yeah. on. Keep washing your hands. Yeah. A little social distancing. Um, once we get to, to herd immunity, uh, we're going to get back to normal living. Yeah. We're going to be able to go visit our parents and grandparents. We're going to be able to travel. Yeah. We're going to be able to go to our kids' games at schools um, and go to graduations, as you yeah. mentioned. But uh, we're almost there, but not there yet. So just you know, please bear with us. Um, follow the, the suggestions, the guidelines, and we are going to get there. Um, and the better we follow the guidelines, the yeah. sooner we, have, we'll, we will get there. I think everybody's tired, and that's the hard part, is you really feel entitled to get your life sure. back, and you've made it this far. And 
it's easy to sort of relax that final mile when co you know family members or coworkers are yep. getting vaccinated, and it's like, boy, but that's almost when a lot of people are most vulnerable to making that one decision. I'm still trying not to, you know, um, travel, you know, or I'm not getting on airplanes and things. I haven't needed to, but at the same time, like, I think hard about, like, would I go travel on an airplane right now? I think statistically and data says it, there's probably not a lot of transmission at this point on airplanes. However, yeah. Yes. However, it's still yeah, no. more risky than staying at uh, home yes. and not doing what we're doing, which is socially distanced no. conversation. So, Yeah, I think another analogy would be it's like the fourth quarter of a football game. Yeah. You know, we're, we're up by six. Um, yeah. Don't fumble. Don't throw an interception. Don't drop the ball. Yeah. We're almost there. It just, yeah. uh, we gotta, just got to bring it home. Yeah. The team, the team, the team. The team. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Well, what didn't we cover? I, I we had a great conversation, uh, Dr. Grifka and, and Ron. It's uh, you know, it's uh, I'm I'm really pleased with how you shared so much of your your backstory. Oh, I want to talk about your daughters really quick because yes. you you took a phone call. Your daughter yes. called from France. Do you mind just sharing? I don't know why she's in France. I find <laughs> she, it interesting. Uh, she uh, she spent three years in the convent. Um, and then realized that wasn't for her, uh-huh. but uh, she's now parlayed that into a job working in pants, uh, France. She uh, designs purses for Chanel, believe it or not. Get out of here. Yeah, seriously. What? Yeah, no, a Catholic Central grad of Grand Rapids. No Catholic way, Central. that's where our kids went too. Yeah, so. but uh, no, she loved it there, but she's a great kid. She's the, the youngest of my three daughters, and my son uh, is in Chicago. He went to Marquette after Catholic Central. Wow. So yeah, That's amazing. Uh, yeah. And, and uh, I have one other friend that lives in France. Uh, you know, he's American and mm-hmm. lives over there, but... Uh, I'm wondering just your have you been able to visit quite a bit? Uh, well, not for the last uh, well, not year, year yeah. yeah. Uh, I guess uh, I was there about uh, 16 months ago. Okay. Like I was hoping to go last summer. That didn't happen. Yeah. Um, probably won't happen this summer, but yeah. we'll see. But yeah, I do miss her. Fortunately, you know, FaceTime, you can connect. And she's got 100%. a little daughter who's yeah. 18 months old now, so get, get to see her. Yeah. At least, uh, to check in with grandpa and exactly. see how he's doing. Uh, yeah, we, I, I, I had never uh, been to Paris, and uh, I had, um, I've been to Spain many times. There's a backstory about uh, some uh, mm-hmm. friend, uh, exchange student we had uh, that lived with. When I was a senior, she was a senior. Anyway, I was able to bring my oldest daughter, uh, what was it, the spring of 2019. Uh, I took her to Paris for a few days. It was both our first mm-hmm. time for, in Paris, and then we went to Madrid for like about a week and a half. And it was fantastic. I spent time with my exchange sister's family, and but France, I, I it's such an amazing. So is she in Paris then? Or? She's uh, just north of Paris. Okay. She's been there for about three years now. What do you know about the luxury handbags industry? Uh, Anything? <laughs> I'm, Anything? Le- I'm learning a lot about them, but uh, <laughs> apparently I keep making bad choices. So <laughs> she gets on you about your your that, handbag collection. That, that she does. Immerse. Do you yes. have a Merce? No, uh, a man yeah, no, I. Uh, um, I've, I've, I've not uh, not taken that path yet. A nice. Uh, I uh, maybe you could ask a. Put in a little request for me. I'll do it. Uh, maybe a, wallet, maybe a luxury uh, fanny pack for there me would go. be great. I'll, 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 <laughs> I'll contact her and see what she's got uh, in her stockpile. I'm sorry, Doctor, <laughs> uh, that I had to end on this note. But uh, what it, is there anything low-hanging fruit that you wanted to talk about that I didn't ask you? I mean, I feel like we've had a great kind of cross-section. I mean, the takeaway is that this is a, a monumental time in the healthcare industry and, and transformative. It's nice to hear you're optimistic. Oh, I am. And you know, certainly COVID has changed everybody's life. And then so many things have been, been made worse by it. But we're heading in a good direction now. And we have learned a lot of things from it. We've learned how to work together more. Mm-hmm. 
we've learned how to do telemedicine. And yeah. that, that will help some people. Mm-hmm. Some people still need to have inpatient views, but uh, exams, but I think uh, the telemedicine is going to be helpful. We've learned how to improve testing quickly. Yeah. And we've learned how to develop vaccines quickly. <laughs> so I think sure. there are some positives that are going to come out of this. And I just you know hope and pray for all the people whose businesses have been affected yeah. by this, that they can uh, come through this all. And I read a statistic that uh, by the year 2030, 80% of the jobs have yet to be invented. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a lot of changes right. for everybody, including yeah. healthcare. So, uh, just, uh, I, you know, this is a great community, uh, a lot of uh, wonderful people in West Michigan. We just need to keep, uh, keep adapting, uh, keep moving forward, and keep making it really the, the driving engine in the state of Michigan. Well, I appreciate this conversation and you popping in. It's been really uh, fun and encouraging to, to hear your, your expertise and your background as CMO now and this uh, long career you've had. Helping primary were most of your surgeries uh, with children then? Where is it all yes, pediatric? The, 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 that eight or nine, uh, seven or eight thousand uh, surgeries. The majority were in kids. Although I do take care of some adults also who may have had a problem from childhood. Sure. So, but uh, the vast majority were kids from you know three hours or three minutes old to yeah uh, 20, 30 years of age. Yeah, amazing. Well, thank you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and uh, you know maybe one day we'll meet up uh, shopping for handbags. There you in, go. Uh, or uh, Champs Elysees. Very good. Brian, <laughs> the pleasure was mine. Thank you. All right, Ron. There you have it. Maybe we'll have an update down the road where Dr. Grifkin and I were shopping for handbags in Paris. That would be quite a story if that were to actually come true. Um, really enjoyed that conversation. That was a nice uh, window into the world of a chief medical officer during this time, this crazy, crazy time of transition. Our entire workplaces and medical facilities are transforming as we speak at speeds we've never really seen before. So my thanks to Dr. Ron Grifka, uh, openly candid, really wonderful, warm conversation and, uh, I'm just grateful he's in his position as Chief Medical Officer at Metro Health University of Michigan Health. And um, I just hope you take that some part of that conversation with you forward and have a great week. Let's go get it, everybody. Take care. The Full Exposure Podcast is brought to you by Metro Health, University of Michigan Health, and Dr. Peter Hahn in appreciation of the creative and artistic visionaries who enrich our lives through cultural connections.